you can explore an exclusive collection of case law at Decisis Law Reports. Browse a comprehensive collection of nearly 14,000 reports of Irish legal judgments delivered since 2011. Visit decisis.ie to find out more. Hello and you're very welcome to episode 23 of The Fifth Court, a podcast on legal affairs presented by myself, Peter Leonard Barrister. And myself, Mark Tottenham Barrister and editor of Decisis.ie. Mark, how are you? Good to see you. And uh, last week, Mark, you will recall, we went full international. Uh, We headed off using the power of satellite uh, to talk to leading King's Counsel, Geoffrey Robertson, who is down there in Sydney at the moment. Uh, We were discussing primarily his book, Lawfare, but we talked about a lot of other things. I think you really enjoyed that interview, didn't you? Yeah, and uh, yes, I I was a bit starstruck, I must confess. He's still very much a campaigning KC, I see. Yeah. And he's, he hasn't left the courts, the Royal Courts of Justice at all. He's just down in Australia for a little while. The energy is still flowing. Definitely. Great stuff. Okay. Anyway, we're back home again with this week's guest, Kean O'Carroll. And he has emerged as one of the country's leading medical negligence solicitors. In the wake of the cervical check scandal, he represented many of the women who had taken cases, the most high profile of which was the late Vicky Phelan. We're going to talk to Kean about his work in this area, as well as other matters that he has uh, discussed uh, at various stages. But before we get to that, let's discuss three cases that you have identified from the Decisis website. The first is a medical negligence action of sorts. Maybe I'm not right in saying it's a medical negligence case. Uh, This is the case of Leahy versus McNally, a decision of Mr. Justice Simons. This case concerned a mother whose son was born with various medical conditions. She attempted to sue a firm of solicitors who had previously represented her son for not pursuing a claim on her son's behalf. However, the court found that she was not entitled to bring the proceedings as she had not suffered the loss. That's right. So, as you say, the, the son uh, suffered from certain illnesses from from birth. Uh, there was a, a hearing loss and then there was another condition where there was delayed diagnosis. Now, when a child is bringing an action through the court, they bring the action through what's called a third, uh, uh, sorry, a next friend. And so in this case, the mother was the next friend. Um, she settled the claim concerning the hearing loss, but no action was brought in relation to the other issue. Now, there may be reasons for that. But ultimately, she then brought proceedings in her own name against the solicitors who had advised in relation to one of these issues. So the problem was that when you sue, you need to sue in respect of your own loss. And because she was not the person who had suffered any injury, it was her son who'd suffered the injury, she couldn't bring the action in her own name. So Mr. Justice Simons, in this case, um, granted an application to dismiss the proceedings basically on the grounds that it fell at the first hurdle. It was she an abuse of process, essentially. Or, or certainly a mistaken, mistaken uh, use of process approach. in okay, the sense that, sh- that it should have been the son whose name the, the proceedings were brought in. And okay. it was noted, in fact, that there were separate proceedings in the son's name concerning these injuries. So okay. It, uh, okay, very good. Okay, so next to asylum law and a decision of the Supreme Court in which the court refused an application by the Minister for Justice to have proceedings struck out on grounds of mootness. This is the case of Odom versus the Minister for Justice, a Supreme Court decision issued by the Chief Justice himself, Mr Justice Donald O'Donnell. Uh, However, despite the case being moot, i.e. the issue had been determined and therefore Mm -hmm. why are we going ahead with this, Mr Justice O'Donnell said no, 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 no. There was still an issue of public importance to be decided. Yeah, so this case concerned a deportation order where the... um the, the the couple in question had undergone a religious marriage ceremony but hadn't observed the civil 
uh, formalities. So it wasn't a marriage that was valid in law. A deportation had been issued in relation to one of the parties. Um, the challenge to the deportation order went all the way up to the High Court and then was accepted by the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court had determined that it was a matter of general public importance. After that decision was made, the minister set aside the deportation order on other grounds. So it was moot. So this person was not being deported. And so the application was made by the Minister for Justice, who was the defendant in the case, to say, well, in those circumstances, this Supreme Court of Appeal can't proceed. And the general rule is that when a case is moot, the court doesn't deal with it any longer. Now, what's funny here, what's unusual here, is that, the, as Mr Justice O'Donnell pointed out, the Supreme Court, when the Court of Appeal was set up in 2014, the Court of Appeal looked like it was a new court. But in fact, it adopted all of the powers of the Supreme Court up to 2014. So in fact, the new court, effectively, was the Supreme Court thereafter, because it now has a sort of discretion as to what type of cases it hears. So once they had decided that an issue was of general and public importance, um, it didn't cease, cease to be of general yes, public and importance simply because it was moot. Gave it so you. they said... It's important that this yes, matter proceeds. Yes, that's exactly. establishing law yeah, that yeah. can be applied in various different other cases that may arise in the yeah. future. Okay, yeah. finally, to a judicial review concerning the contentious issue of drink driving. This is the case of Riley versus the Director of Public Prosecutions, a decision of Mr Justice Garrett Simons in the High Court. The court set aside a conviction for drink driving on the basis that the hearing which took place in the District Court was unsatisfactory. I think that the judge was asking too many questions, Mark. Was that, was yeah. that the issue? Yeah. Too many interventions? from yeah, the bench. Exactly. So it was a drink-driving drink prosecution. And what happened, what appears to have happened is that the judge was a little bit sympathetic to the guard who was in the witness box, took the view that maybe he was a little bit um, nervous or uh, inexperienced. And so he asked a few questions during the hearing before cross-examination took place. And the nature of those interventions, was, it was suggested, were amounted to effectively coaching the guards to give the right answer. Now, of course, the purpose of the court is to be the independent adjudicator between the prosecution and the defence. That doesn't necessarily preclude the court asking certain questions, preferably after the, uh, the parties have asked their own questions. But they certainly shouldn't be prompting a particular witness to give a particular answer. And so... When, so when this, this particular conviction was challenged by way of judicial review, and Mr Justice Simons, having looked at what happened and the way that the, the um, questioning took place, he said, and I think the quotation here, he said, the trial judge's interventions are open to the reasonable interpretation that he coached the witness in respect of his answers on what was the crucial issue in the case. Okay, very good, very, very good. Okay, back shortly with Solicitor Keen O'Carroll. Silence in the Fifth Court. So we're delighted to be joined today in the studio by Kean O'Carroll, who is a solicitor from Cashel County Tipperary, who has uh, been involved in a number of very high-profile actions in the last couple of years uh, concerning cervical screening cases, in particular the very high-profile cases involving the late Vicky Phelan and the late Ruth Morrissey, whose cases made front pages. And we're here to talk to Kean about his own career and some views he has in relation to medical negligence cases obviously cervical screening cases in particular. So Keen, thanks very much for joining us here in the Fifth Court. 
I'm delighted to be here. Thanks. So, Keen, uh, could you start by just telling us maybe a little bit about um, how you came into the law and what led you towards kind of medical negligence cases in particular? Um, I did a science degree after school and I wasn't particularly good at it. Was that in, I, in UCC or...? or in, in, in Maynooth, in fact. Maynooth, right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had a very turbulent course through uh, a, a three-year degree that took me a bit longer than that. And uh, we've all been there. <laughs> good. Well, um, and, uh, and and during the course of that, through um, family tragedy and circumstances, I came in contact with uh, law and particularly civil actions for personal injury. My father was killed in an accident, and um, so suddenly that seemed to make more sense to me. It was about words instead of numbers and symbols, which I wasn't very good at. And sure. uh, so I I started just actually wandering down the corridor in the library and uh, having a look at a couple of law books uh, to try and understand what was going on. Do you mind me asking a little mm. bit about your father's case? Is that something you'd be prepared to talk about? Or sure. just, you know, and, and what, what insight it gave you into the law? Well, well, it was quite complicated from my mother's point of view. She was the client, obviously, mm. and uh, dad had been electrocuted on board a ship. Um, he was working on a an Italian ship in international waters, but his remains were brought into France. Um, so there was a French aspect to it, there was an Italian aspect, and he had effectively been working with the French company on a British company's contract. He worked for Marconi, originally Marconi International Marine. So there were all these complex aspects to it, mm. which looking back now, I can see how complicated it was, but it was the first time I'd ever seen anything mm. to do with a, a, a civil action and my mother. So suppose I found myself helping her writing letters and things like that. And um, when I think back as well, I mean, there was an extraordinary amount of written communication between us and my mother's solicitor, which would actually be quite unusual in most cases. When I um, And this is in pre-internet days. I mean, so these are actually letters. Exactly. Um, and most of the communication was by letter. Yeah. So this is, we're going back, Dad was killed in 1990. Um, so that was something which uh, struck me and stuck with me. And I think the main thing that um, I learned from that as well was the importance of seeing the situation from the client's perspective. Yeah. Um, it was a very useful introduction, if I can put such a tragedy in that way. Um, it kind of changed my life as well because it, uh, I, I woke up to certain realities that I couldn't uh, drift as I was drifting. Um, and uh, and I suppose I was always left with the awful sense that, you know, Dad had passed away without a sense of the direction his son's life might take, you know, that hopefully, ultimately, he would have derived some satisfaction or pride from, but he was uh, he didn't have the opportunity and the irony that I probably wouldn't have gone down the road that I've gone down, which I think has been of some use. Um, uh, uh, but for his, um, but for his death. And w- when you talk about seeing things from the client's point of view, yeah. are you able to say in general whether you felt that the lawyers you dealt with did see things from your point of view, or did you feel in, in any way kind of let down by them not seeing things from from you or your mother's point of view? Um, I wouldn't like to be too um, critical of it, but certainly it framed my view on things like um, legal costs in particular. Um, and uh, and it certainly m- my practice 
uh, not we we don't charge our clients a fee because I think legal costs are such that us lawyers are certainly in civil actions uh, are quite well paid for the work we do. So, so you're saying you take everything on a no phone, no fee basis and if you don't succeed then you don't get paid? Or? Well yes but I I agree with the Law Society in objecting to no phone, no fee as an expression because sure. I'm afraid that's often used um, as a as a bit of a cod to right. clients. You're told, you know, no win, no fee. Um, it seems very attractive but then when you win there is a fee. Yeah. That's the corollary. Yeah. And uh, personally, I, I appreciate that there's nothing inherently unlawful about it, but I still think it's wrong because I think excuses are made to justify a fee which is still in certain cases calculated on roughly a percentage basis, um, which is unnecessary. So you're, you're relying effectively on the taxation system exactly. to, to, and to I know, pay. Absolutely, yes. And, yeah. and, and I know several colleagues many colleagues who do exactly the same were not particularly special in that regard but I but I think it's unfortunate when when that still happens and certainly that came from to come back to your question I suppose I was left with a certain view on charges hmm. uh, as a result of seeing a widow who in fairness had been well looked after by or provided for by her husband because he was a very prudent man but nevertheless that that there would be very significant legal charges um, from a settlement in those circumstances. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. and that's a, that's an incredibly powerful route into law, a reason to, to want to get into law. Um, so, so will you take us from that? So you were a science student in, in Maynooth and you went to setting up your own practice in Cashel and you have set up a national medical negligence practice, practice in Cashel. So, so will you tell us the story? How did that happen? Well, I trained in a practice in Clonmel and then I worked there and then I became a partner and I got a wonderful training from my master, uh, John Lynch, uh, who's still in practice in Clonmel. And then that partnership uh, broke up around uh, 2010 and that's when I set up my own practice. And I had at that stage already been practicing in medical negligence, but not to the same degree that I was from then on. I knew it was the area that I particularly enjoyed. I had, I think, got a lot of experience through um, particularly uh, the, the Brian Rossiter inquiry, which was a... Oh, yes, in Clonmel. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. The um, Hugh Hartnett investigation, wasn't that it? Exactly. Yes. And, and from that, there was, a, there was a separate civil action. There was a very lengthy inquest in Cork. Uh, there was a, ju- ju- a judicial review relating to that inquest. And when you spend six years working on one person's medical records in the most minute details, um, you you learn a lot. And I had learned a lot at that stage and knew that that was the area that I was particularly, that I liked and I think I was good at. So I decided when I was setting up my own practice that it would be largely focused on medical negligence. And that's why the practice was was called a medical negligence and personal injury law firm. Okay, so cervical check happened and you became mm. the prime solicitor in relation to that with a number of very high-profile clients. Who, who was your first client in relation to that? Well, that was Vicky Phelan. Um, she came to us in January of 2018 and my colleague Siobhan Ryan and I met her and realised on that day in January 2018 that we needed to act very quickly. 
and case management, as you know, is a wonderful opportunity for injured parties, for plaintiffs in court actions to really get extra special and urgent attention from the courts and the court system, I think, just works brilliantly, particularly in those circumstances. And before we get into the case itself, I mean, Mm. I think Mr. Justice Cross described her, I think, as one of the most impressive witnesses he'd ever seen in the courts. Yes. Um, Did did she strike you as a a particularly impressive person from the time you met her? She did. She was, um, she, she was just a wonderful um, person. And there were the business aspects to her. Uh, There were the personal, there was the personal side. So we developed over the years a very close friendship, Mm. I would say. And by the time Uh, you met her, I mean, she already knew that she was was suffering from a terminal illness. Oh, certainly. Um, But it it was much more than that. I mean, she had been told that really she had little more than six months to live. At that stage, she hadn't yet accessed pembrolizumab, which was the drug that she had to fight for access to because it wasn't indicated at that stage for um, cervical cancer. And and she was getting very, very sick. Now, at that stage, she was still looking well. Excuse me. And I think she was still, she still had a certain quality of life. Mm. But by the time we got to the trial in April, and that's mm. as quickly as it moved on. So From April 2020? Yeah. Pr- okay. Proceedings were issued in February and the trial was eight weeks later. Right. Um, uh, and that also is down to um, Kevin Cross yep. as the presiding judge managing uh, case management cases as his predecessor and his successor mm-hmm. uh, do as well. It's just, it's just a wonderful system that people in need of priority receive exactly the priority they need. And defendants too, to be fair to them, you know, they have to do a lot of jumping through hoops to accommodate that type of a timeline. And there's very little resistance from defendants. Yeah. Obviously, they have to ensure that their client's position is protected and that they're properly represented. But there is generally a very high level of understanding and cooperation in that type of case. Um, so yes, um, yeah. it, it came yeah. on for trial in, in, in April then of 2018. Because that's something you don't really hear in the press very much about how the, the courts do a good job and the defendants are are not overly obstructive. I mean, very often what, what we're hearing in the press is, is the opposite to that. But I mean, you're, you're, it sounds from what you're saying as if you, you feel the legal profession can step up to the mark when, when, when justice requires it. But I think it steps up to the mark all of the time or most of the time. I, I know there are certain delays and it takes a certain amount of time at the moment, for example, in in my uh, area of practice where we're looking for specially fixed trial dates all the time. There's mm. a, a bit of a backlog and it's now running towards 11 months before you'll get a trial date, except in those urgent situations. But, but, but that's quite a recent development. And leaving that aside, I mean, the whole system just works extremely well, very smooth. Uh, but more importantly, we have a system in this country that allows the... Uh, the most dispossessed of us, in a sense, to challenge the most resourced organs mm. of the state and international entities within mm. this state. It's just incredible mm. to think that, you know, you never have to worry when a client comes to you and says, I need access to the mm. courts, that you won't be able to get that for them and that you won't be able to go to barristers like you, mm. uh, whoever you want, and approach them, no matter how elevated they are in their branch of the profession. 
Can I come back in there, Keen? And just in, in relation to Vicky Phelan, and obviously the whole nation knows her and the service that she did the state. Mm. Um, so she she came to you and, and why was it your firm that she came to? Uh, well, she says that um, she had looked around and we had worked on a number of breast cancer misdiagnosis cases. And at that stage, we had quite a bit of experience already in cancer misdiagnosis. And she also knew that some of those cases had been case managed. So there were cases which had to be expedited through the courts. Okay. So she had she knew she was looking for uh, a firm that had good experience in cancer misdiagnosis and urgent cases. And I think that's why she... Um, Okay, and uh, and us. as, as Mar- well, you know, so you had you had a background, and she had mm. done some research, and oh, saw yeah. that you were the correct firm for her, uh, and obviously so, Keen. Um, but to pick up on Mark's uh, Mark's question to mm. you, and you confirm that at that stage when she came into your office, she was aware that her illness was terminal. Mm. I mean, how do you, on a personal level, you are a legal practitioner, and you have to stay solid for your clients at all at all stages. Mm. But is the emotional impact of that? I mean, that is that is pretty huge, isn't it? When somebody tells you their story, um, you are a very empathetic man and your background story, which I didn't know about your, your late father, which was very sad, um, maybe gave you that sort of empathy. But what, what is it like dealing with somebody with such a, with such a sad story right from the start? I think it's empowering. It, uh, it motivates you. And you can generally... People who are facing a very uncertain future like that, particularly women in that situation, but men also... And it's as if their character is distilled and you're left with all of the good parts that you're Mm. dealing with. Because it couldn't be that only these extremely nice people are afflicted in this way. It Mm. it just couldn't be. Like random selection must surely occur. Um, And yet you just find yourself in the company of people all of the time who are extremely nice, um, empathetic, who are focused on all of the right things and for all of the right reasons. Um, so you're dealing with people who are, in a sense, altruistic themselves, and then you just develop a relationship with them very easily. And I remember that day, myself and Siobhan both hugged Vicky before she even left the office the first day. And like that wouldn't be usual. No, okay. um, but she was an extraordinary person. And then... You know, like Mary Lou MacDonald said after she died, um, she said that all of her meetings with her, she was purposeful. Okay. When she was asked about, you know, the emotional side of it, well, I didn't see that. She said, you know, she was purposeful through all of those. And there were times when she was very purposeful with us. And then there were other times when she could let her hair down and have fun. And there were lots of other times when she and I would... There was a lot of kind of campaigning, you might call it. And she had a number of different campaigns that she worked on, all of which were, or most of which were successful. There were some uh, parts of her life's work that were unfinished at the time she died. Um, and hopefully those will progress well, the, the, now. The, the, two, the two words you used there, which I think are really interesting, you mm. talked about altruism and her pur- purposefulness, mm. if, if I'm saying that yeah. correctly. Uh, and I suppose the reason she came to national attention was ultimately 
she wasn't willing to go along with the confidentiality clause. Wasn't that it? She, she, she insisted that her story and the negligence that she believed she'd experienced uh, at the hands of the state was disclosed to the public. Uh, and she was determined that that information was going to get out. Can you talk to us about how that happened at the end when, when the issue came about, can we keep this under wraps? She said, no, 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 no. The world must be told about this. Well, that's because she knew that there were other women involved. Um, and so when we talk about altruism, I mean, she was the most altruistic person I've ever met mm. in my life because she was truly willing to sacrifice an awful lot of herself, um, her time, which was incredibly precious, um, her privacy. She was a very private person when this all started. She wasn't a person seeking attention or publicity. And yet she'd very honestly say that she derived tremendous strength and support from the outpouring of love and good wishes from the people of Ireland and internationally. So um, she was very honest about everything. She was very honest about her her body. She was very honest about her disease and she was honest about her reaction to everything that went on. Um, you were asking though about... The, the, the actual point at which she wanted mm. this disclosed, what had happened disclosed. She said that the very first day that she came into us. Uh, I think it was the 28th of January, 2018, as I said. Um, so right from the beginning, even though, and this was the odd part, she said, I will never sign a non-disclosure clause. Um, even though in my experience and yours as well, I'm sure that would very rarely happen. Hmm. So I, I, I don't know why she anticipated that. It was, you know, I certainly didn't think it was going to be a feature in the case because it normally doesn't arise. And yet if we fast forward on whatever it was, 12 weeks or 11 weeks, um, and we come to the mediation, maybe a week before the trial. And quite unusually, uh, the first thing that the other side presented as uh, an absolute precondition was that there would be a non-disclosure agreement. Right. And, and like I said, that is quite unusual. Obviously, mediations have their own um, non-disclosure clauses, but this was something extra. This was yeah. something special that was being proposed. Um, and we went around the, the rooms as such for a couple of hours, but there was going to be no change in their position. Certainly, I'm I'm on record with Vicky's approval saying that I did say to her that this is not in your best interest. Um, I think you're very, very sick and it would be prudent to at least explore whether settlement can be achieved, the the financial terms that uh, that that would naturally be appropriate, um, and I don't think publicity is something that you know from a trial that you would necessarily benefit from either. I, I think that's that's my role yeah. as somebody's uh, legal advisor to cautious caution them at least. Mm. Um, but she was very clear, and in being clear, I mean, I was mm. I was very happy then to to uh, help her achieve everything she wanted to achieve, which was to blow the lid off this thing. And but, as a thing, it was a pretty shabby thing that was going on. Can I move you from Vicky Phelan's case to these cases generally in relation to negligence in these, in these uh, cervical screening programs? Mm. Because the test that was adopted, I think particularly in the Ruth Morrissey case and affirmed in the Supreme Court, was the test of what they called absolute confidence. And when you hear the term absolute confidence, it sounds like absolute certainty. Mm. Uh, now, I know there probably is a distinction, but when I've spoken to people from the medical profession, they say, well, the nature of a screening program is that there has to be 
you need to allow for certain errors. You need to allow for the fact that, you know, that, 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 that there will be some people whose cases will be passed. And certainly in, in at least one of the cases, and I know it's, it's a very sensitive area, it looked as if the, there had been blind testing and that the other screeners had passed these particular slides. Do you think that the nature, that the result of these cases has made it very difficult to run the kind of screening programmes that, that, that we obviously rely upon? Not at all. I mean, the outcome of these cases, and mm. particularly the work of Vicky Phelan, is to improve the quality of the screening programmes, particularly to improve the quality of cervical check, which desperately needed it. I mean, most of our screening programmes, if you look at breast check, mm. statistically at least, and in terms of litigation as well from our own experience, it's, it's a wonderfully run service which provides right. the highest quality of screening. I've no doubt, well, I've no reason to suspect that either bowel screening or the glaucoma programs are any different. But cervical check was a problematic program. You think it was a badly run program? Well, I don't think, Mm. I don't know, I don't know how to run a screening program, Mm. but Dr. Gabriel Scali does. And he's the guy who said that anybody who suggests, in his most recent report, he says it is reprehensible for Mm. anyone to suggest that cervical check was being run to international standards. He has also said that the quality assurance in cervical check was non-existent and he described it as a service that was doomed to fail. Right. So his criticisms have been been very Mm. clear. Uh, If you read his reports, you will see the depth and the breadth of the criticisms and failures in cervical check. It was a disaster. And it was a disaster that was contributed to by a government policy of outsourcing screening to for-profit laboratories, which were both inside and outside this country. Currently, it's all outside and 100% of screening is done in the US. But to come back to the point about the test, Mm. and that's the key point, um, the medical profession had had an extraordinary reaction to the High Court judgment in Ruth Morrissey's case. During that trial, I think it was in the second week of what was ultimately, you know, a 36 or 37 day trial in the High Court, Mr. Justice Kevin Cross told the parties, there were two laboratories, the HSC and us for the plaintiff. He told all the parties, I will be asking for submissions at the end of this case on these various questions. And included in that was the test for the standard of care or standard of approach, if you want to use the new language from from the Supreme Court. And during the course of the case, this UK case of Penny Palmer um, was discussed at length and was put to all of the relevant experts in cytology and in laboratory uh, analysis of slides. And while there was some varying degree, they all largely accepted that the laboratories were adopting that standard Mm. in the UK, which as a shorthand note is called absolute confidence. Um, As a result of that, when the submissions were written, there was largely general acceptance of that as being the appropriate By defendants test. as well as plaintiffs. Exactly. Mm. And the HSE declined to comment. So the HSE declined to comment on this test. Fast forward to the judgment. So did, did the HSE's own experts and counsel accept the absolute confidence test? I mean, you're saying they wouldn't comment publicly or they wouldn't comment they in the case? They didn't comment in, in the submissions. Okay. They said that right. they were not commenting. Right. Right. And they adopted an approach which they described as taking the back seat. Right. Um, Fast forward now to a couple of days after Mr. Justice Cross's decision comes out and suddenly there is this extraordinary reaction from 
senior clinicians in Ireland, the screening community, all saying this is ludicrous. Um, They had an urgent meeting with uh, the Department of Health and the HSE also, and clearly a decision was made that to placate the concerns of these doctors, the HSE would now join in a Supreme Court appeal, what was then going to be a court vote. It was a leapfrog appeal, obviously, to the Supreme Court. So the HSE was appealing the test. Without having made submissions in the first place. Precisely. And I thought that that was outrageous. And to do that to a dying woman in the final months of her life, basically, um, it was an extraordinarily unfair and unkind thing to have done. Um, But it also made no sense. Now, the Supreme Court then took on this issue of absolute confidence. What does it mean? And they realised, Mr. Justice Clark certainly realised, I think, that the language was unhelpful. Mm. And that what we needed was to explain the language. Because nothing is absolute in medicine. Sure. Of course it isn't. And the judgment of Mr. Justice Cross was very clear as well in understanding the subtleties between the different types of false negative. And that there are many situations when an abnormality is missed and it does not amount to a breach of duty. And that is the case across medical negligence practice. Mm. But it's a fact which is conveniently avoided or denied Uh, by senior medical practitioners who like to maintain the position that they are terribly put upon and Mm. that there is this impossible standard that they have to meet, not only in cervical screening, but across the board. And so just to to quickly wrap up that point, what uh, the Supreme Court said was that the test, in fact, is really one of an absence of doubt. And if a screener who is not a doctor they're a laboratory scientist. If they look at a slide and they're looking at cells and they say, hmm, I'm not sure, I don't have an absence of doubt, yep. they cannot pass that slide as normal. They must pass it to a doctor. That is the test. Now, that is nothing but a safe and appropriate test. And it's exactly the test that applies for 21 years in our neighbouring jurisdiction and north of the border here. Okay, and it has now been established in this jurisdiction as a result of the Supreme Court decision. Can I just ask you, where are are you at now with cervical check cases? Because you you still have a number of them. Is it still a live issue as much as ever? It is. um, There is a trial running at the moment um, in the four courts. There was one that another case started last week and settled on day two. Unfortunately, cases are still going to court and there are some cases going through the tribunal. So, because of the backlog with trial dates in the High Court at present, it's likely that it's going to take another couple of years okay. to deal okay. with. Okay, so you're going to be busy a lot with that of for these a while. cases. Well, I have. But you... we're not. Obviously, a lot of other practitioners are involved in those cases. Of course, yeah. of course, of course, Keen. You're also can I, can I just to move away from that just slightly? We, mm. we can't let you go without asking you this one. Um, you also are involved in personal injuries, and there was a recent decision in the High Court with Mr. Justice Toomey. Uh, a case that you were involved in, Keen, I think, where he started giving out about the fact of solicitors referring uh, clients to specialists for reports. Um, you, you, you're taking a strong view on that one. Well, we don't refer people to doctors. My role is to investigate an injury. And in doing so, we have various experts, medical experts, that we commission opinions from. Those opinions are commissioned from senior clinicians who are independent and it's for the benefit of the court to suggest that first of all that that a solicitor refers a person for effectively medical care 
is very wrong. And if that does happen, it shouldn't happen. What about, we've had a guest in, in this show, and I know you heard the interview, mm. uh, Declan Keane, a consultant obstetrician, uh, and he talked about expert shopping, mm. you know, trying to get the, the right decision so you could win your case. Yeah. What do you say about that? Well, he said he had been asked in two cases to give an opinion and that uh, when his opinion was offered, it wasn't accepted. So he seems to have said that there wasn't negligence. I think it'd be very interesting to find out how those cases ended up. Um, I find that, well, to come back to Mr. Justice Toomey's uh, decision, I mean, clearly and logically, that could never uh, operate because how could anybody bring a medical negligence action if you had to go to the treating doctor and only the treating doctor for an opinion? It is, however, the way um, uh, Dr. Keane was suggesting things should work because I think his idea, his, his solution to the problem was that the medical profession in Ireland would provide a panel of doctors who would then give opinions and that I, as a plaintiff solicitor, would be obliged to go to that panel. Um, I think that would probably sort out the waiting lists for trial dates in the High Court in a very short time. Okay, so you don't think that would work? I think that that is the most self-serving an extraordinary suggestion that I've ever heard and it really is laughable. So there you go. And the fifth, mm-hmm. court, fifth court, we're getting the debate going. Mark, do you want to come in there? Yeah, well, on the wider issue of medical negligence cases, I think Declan Keane suggested, and I, it's not probably not an unreasonable suggestion, that a lot of medical practitioners feel that medical negligence specialists, solicitors like yourself, are almost kind of hovering, waiting to, for, to take advantage of their mistakes. And I can see, you know, why, why they might think that. It's not an... But... He also suggested that the medical profession was very good at examining its own mistakes and regulating its own procedures. Do you have a view on that particular issue? Do you, do you feel that they do um, correct their own mistakes sufficiently to, to that the, 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 the legal profession is kind of taking advantage unnecessarily? Well, there are a couple of parts to that. I mean, first of all, um, every profession should examine its own conduct. But that does not mean that every profession, and particularly the medical profession, should be the judge in their own case. There has to be independent scrutiny. And if they're objecting to that, you have to ask why. Secondly, the cervical check um, debacle, as Vicky Phelan loved to call it, she didn't like to call it a scandal, um, if anything shows us how important it is that uh, victims of medical accidents have access to the courts. They must have access to the courts in order to hold those professions to account. Thirdly, the current patient safety bill, which has just passed the Doyle stages, shows us how difficult it is for an individual plaintiff to find the truth um, from the medical profession in Ireland. They have lobbied very skillfully and successfully to ensure that any audit that is now restarted in Ireland in cervical check, for example, cannot be disclosed to the patient. Cannot be it disclosed. Is, it, is, it is forbidden under the Act for that to be disclosed. So that were Vicky Phelan to be, uh, were another Vicky Phelan to be looking through her file today uh, as she was one day in a hospital waiting for a test, flicking through her file and suddenly coming across, as she did, the audit result which showed that an error had been made. That, could, could, that will not ever happen again sure. because the patient safety bill prevents that okay. from There are so many through. issues that we could go on uh, to discuss, but unfortunately our time has run out. And Keen, we have to ask you the question that we always ask every guest, which is, do you have a book or film or other work of art that you would recommend to uh, any of your colleagues in the legal profession or any law students coming up behind you? 
um, lowbrow uh, choices here. I think uh, on the movie front, uh, My Cousin Vinny, hard to beat. Of course. Uh, on the book front, I was thinking... My favourite book is Brideshead Revisited and there is a brilliant, I, I did a lot of work in the district court in my earlier days. Wow. And <laughs> there's a wonderful plea and mitigation in that where uh, uh, three miscreant young university students get very drunk and get involved in a car accident. Sebastian Flight, wasn't it? Uh, exactly. And then Rex Mottram organises everything, including a barber, yeah. before they have a wonderful plea in mitigation in the magistrate's court. Yeah. The great even war. Exactly. Okay. Thank you very much, Keen, for joining us here. Keen, thank you very much. That was absolutely illuminating. Thank you very much. The Fifth Court will adjourn until next week. So that's all from this edition of The Fifth Court. We hope you have enjoyed it. Can we say a huge thank you to our guest, Solicitor Keen O'Carroll, for coming in and talking to us. Mark, I think that's the most powerful interview we've had. Really interesting. And I mean, a very he's clearly so personally invested in his cases. It's really yeah, it, yeah, no, it's really huge, huge, fascinating interview. And we're very and, grateful. And, to and, and really sort of detailed insights into the absolutely, medical negligence. Absolutely. You know, a level of honesty that was just, mm. it, was, it was very impressive. Um, yeah, what a great interview. Okay, and I would also like to say a big thank you to our producer, Conal O'Moroin, and to the Dublin South Podcasts, and in particular, uh, Podcast Studios, sorry, and in particular to, to Lee Brennan for this great job he did on recording this show. If you have any comments or any legal stories, please get in touch with us. We have a website there so you can contact us. We want to hear from the public and we want to follow stories that people find interesting. And as always, Mark was saying, share, share, share. Absolutely. Friends and colleagues and anybody else who might find it interesting. Listen, thank you for listening. So from me, Peter Leonard. And myself, Mark Tottenham. We'll see us very soon in the Fifth Court. Never miss a vital Irish legal judgment. Check out Decisis Law Reports, where you'll find a fully indexed collection of all Irish judgments delivered since 2011. Visit decisis.ie to find out more.